Hey everybody, welcome back to Defenders Dialogue with Car and Adam. I'm Adam Phillips, president of Untold Stories Marketing, and with me as always is... Car D'Angelo, owner of Earth 2 Comics in Sherman Oaks and Northridge, California. All right, fantastic. This is episode 27. Wow. I know. And I'm calling it Return of the King of the Seas. And I'm calling it yes. Radiation Bad, Fish Food Good. Ah, nice. <laughs> Very cool. We're going to be talking about issues 52 and 53 of The Mighty Defenders. But before we do that, I had a couple of notes. Two of them are real quick ones, and then one's kind of a deep dive. The first one is supplemental to what we were talking about last time with the end of the Scorpio story. And remember, we were talking about, like, well, maybe it was inspired a little bit. You know, the relationship between Scorpio and the Nick Fury LMD might have been vaguely inspired by Stanley and Larry Lieber's relationship. Yeah. Oh, but wait, oh, but wait their, their ages don't make sense and all this, right? I was just curious, because we also threw out there a couple of times, like, David Anthony Kraft was uh, this this old or that old when he wrote these stories. And we didn't really know how old he was. Turns out, 1977, Kraft was 25 years old. And what happens when you reverse those numbers? You get 52, which was the age that Scorpio kept saying, you know, and lamenting that, I'm 52, I'm done. So I wonder if maybe, maybe a little bit, he was, you know, reflecting his own inner anxieties over not being, you know, not having success as a writer or something like that. Yeah. Or I would even throw it out. I mean, you know, I mean, we were sort of looking at these other professional people in his life that he had worked with, but it, you know, there's also the, the midlife crisis of, of, you know, the white male midlife crisis was a (laughs) concept that was obviously developing in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. And but but certainly might have even been his father, because if he was 25, you know, his father was probably in his 50s as well. Uh, You know, but that could be. But yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. I mean, we see that a lot. I mean, this here's an apropos of nothing. Remember when 1602 came out, the Neil Gaiman thing? I do. And, you know, and it was such a big deal because it was Neil Gaiman writing Marvel heroes. But of course, they were in this strange, you know, semi medieval. Yes kind of world and someone i forget what website or whatever it was but someone had proposed that like if you turned 1602 upside down mm. and kind of read it in a certain way it was actually it spelled <laughs> out loki <laughs> and that you could read it as loki and that that's going to be the big reveal that you know that this isn't a just a elseworld story but it's actually some sort of you know trapped by Loki the same way, you know, um, when Avengers came back with George Perez and Kurt Busiek, you know, they were in the past due to, um, you know, Morgan Le Fay and thought they were knights and stuff like that. And that was one of those things where I held on to that belief for, you know, eight issues. And so I was horribly disappointed when Loki never showed up. <laughs> but I'm always looking for, I'm always looking for those little alphanumeric, you know. Sure. You know, yeah. It only takes a few 1960s Batman stories for you to real think everything in terms of being an anagram, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Between that and <laughs> between that and Zatanna, you know, now we have to read everything backwards if it looks yes. weird. Yeah. Yes. And All you right. read every street sign. Oh, yeah. street. <laughs> it's yeah, the absolutely. corner of Gardner and Fox. I get it. Yeah. 
So, all right. Second tiny little note we were talking about last time in issue fifty-one uh, at the beginning that Moon Knight was comparing himself and Nighthawk to John Steed and Emma Peel. Right. And I th- thought I'd take a look at just out of sheer curiosity. The Avengers TV show started in nineteen sixty-one. Two years before the comic book. Um, I have no idea when it came to the U.S. That's a good question, actually. But, you know, so I because I always wondered that, like, what came first? Especially because I think it's Avengers. I can't believe I'm going to remember this issue number, but I think it's Avengers number 135, which is like the big origin of the vision story Mm -hmm. where the old professor guy is listening to the radio or, or watching TV, but you don't really see the TV screen, but it's clearly the Avengers because, you know, the, the word balloon coming from the TV says, Mrs. Peel, we're needed. <laughs> right. So, you know, there was always those little nods of the head to the the other pop culture thing that shared their name. Now, for some reason, we were talking about Barbara Morse. I can't even remember where we started talking about Barbara Morse. But Bobby, Bobby, Barbara, Bobby a.k.a. Bobby Morse, yes. Yes, right. And last time I said, I mentioned to you that she made her debut in uh, Astonishing Tales number six. And you started asking me all these follow-up questions. <laughs> and I didn't know anything other than, oh, she made her debut in Astonishing Tales number six. So I did kind of a deep dive into reading. And it was Kazar. You said it was a Kazar story. Yes. Yeah. And it's so bonkers that I want to share it with you and anyone who's listening to this because it's just – anyway, in issue number six, there's a Kazar story going on, and it's typical jungle stuff written by Jerry Conway, <laughs> art by Barry Smith. The story is not that memorable particularly, but there's a scene where we cut back to England and Plunder Castle because you remember Kazar is actually Lord Kevin Plunder. Right. And um, a young woman is banging on the door of the castle and says that she's got to see Lord Plunder right away. He's he's in grave danger and that she has a power. She can feel people in her mind and she must warn Lord Plunder that he's going to die. That's Barbara Morse, but they don't name her for a few issues. So she's hanging around waiting for Kazar to show up at his ancestral home, but he doesn't. So like the next two or three issues, there's like a very brief scene in each issue where she's going, when will he be here? I've got to warn him kind of stuff. And then there's like a reprint issue in there. And finally, in issue 12 of Astonishing Tales, she shows up again. And this time, the whole thing about him being in danger is completely tossed out the window, forgotten. It's probably a new writer by that point, right? It's Roy Thomas. And this is the first of a two-parter where Kazar has traveled to the Florida Everglades and is helping Dr. Barbara Morse and her fiancé, Dr. Paul Allen, who are part of a U.S. scientific project. Uh, he's helping them search for Professor Ted Salas, you know, who becomes the man thing. And they say that we know, she, we know he had a girl with him named Ellen, and she had ties to AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. But that doesn't really ever go anywhere either. It becomes this chasm. Ellen, Ellen this from ma- AIM didn't get turned into a superhero. No. I don't think anything ever gets done with her much because it becomes just mostly Kazar and Man well, thing for a couple of issues. And 
and now I'm looking at this and I'm 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 looking at a description of the issue. The middle seven pages are by Len Wein, yep. John Buscema, and Neil Adams. Is it is it like a flashback? Because it says something. Is it is it something to this? Is it like a Savage Tales story that they kind of just sandwiched between these two things? That I believe that is exactly what it is. Yes, and the Neil Adams stuff, if I recall correctly, it's in the Swamp Thing on the bus, which one of these days I'm going to read. But Man Swamp Thing, Th- Man Thing, excuse me, Man Thing on the bus. I'm going to read one of these days. But um, I believe it was. It's it's like a one of those stories Neil did that has like a lot of sort of texture on it. Right. Well, it might've been for black and white. That's what I'm trying. Right. To exactly. And I think they even recolored it like in black and white and they left it mostly black and white, but just put like yellow tones on it to give it a different feel. Right. Yeah. Cause it says it's kind of like a follow-up or a side story to the origin of man thing in, in Savage Tales. But, but the crazy part though is let's, cause I never knew this Len Wein writing man thing. Oh yeah, I, I agree with you there. Simultaneous I mean, with like the, the beginnings of Swamp Thing. Yep. Uh, yeah, the, just that one story, I think. Right, but it's uh-huh. still it is crazy. You're right. Absolutely. All right. So the last stop on our quick tour of Bobby Morse's bizarre beginnings. Okay. <laughs> Astonishing Tales number fifteen. This is the issue I had when I when it came out, and I probably was about ten or eleven years old. But like I, I may have mentioned before, mostly I got my comics at that time when I saw my grand, my maternal grandparents and they would always give me a comic book. And this is a weird one because if you look at that cover, it's like, I'm just going to say it. Basically, it's Kazar dropped in the middle of the movie Superfly, you know, and he's trying to stop the pushers. It's written by Mike Friedrich, this issue, and art by Gil Kane. It looks real nice. But... um Kaiser's in the city. He's fighting these pushers and stuff, and he's on the run from them with Zebu, by the way. When a van pulls up, like a panel van, you know, pulls up at random and <laughs> stops, the door opens, and somebody, the driver says, Jump in if you want to get away, you know, whatever. And he says, Thank you, whoever you are. And she says, Yep, that's me, Barbara Morse, forgotten lady biologist. So she's back again. And then a couple of pages later, a cop is threatening to arrest Kazar, and she um, keeps that from happening by showing, flashing him a badge from Shield, and saying that Kazar is on special assignment with her. So now she's an agent hmm. of Shield, forgotten biologist and agent of Shield. Yes, so I think she, that's where she stays for a while, and she, be, you know, stays in the Kazar stories, this kind of supporting character until somebody brings her back many years later. I think she was not just Mockingbird. I think she was also called Huntress. Okay. It's, but that, 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 that's three different identities in like six issues or eight issues. It's crazy. And didn't you say she started with some sort of psychic power? Yes. They dropped that completely. I mean, that's why I like when, Steve Gerber was focusing on Nighthawk that he did those pages, those little biographical memories, because it kind of put a, cause Nighthawk was a similar kind of character that had different purposes and different stories. And it wasn't really like somebody was 
telling the story of Nighthawk over the past three or four years. So that he kind of gave it a backstory to make it make sense. And why would he wind up with the grandmaster and, Oh, he had this heart problem and Oh, that, you know, that that kind of brings sense. It would be interesting if someone, you know, tried to do something like that with Bobby Morris, like, Oh no, I used to just pretend I had the psychic powers because I was undercover for shield, but telling people I had psychic powers got me, you know, got me in to see them. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's so crazy. That's it, it was Wild West. I mean, it really was. Right? Uh... Yeah, exactly. And this is, I mean, this is one of the things I love about Marvel in the 70s, especially when you get to these, I don't know, tertiary series. And the black and white books had a lot of sort of t- stuff like this. It was, no one was minding the store. People were just doing whatever they thought worked. So... It was to put out product. They were trying to flood the market as best they could, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when you got product that good, I mean, seriously, Kazar, they kept trying. And I mean, I think the only time anyone's cared about that character much was that Bruce Jones series from many years later, The Savage, oh, yeah. Kazar. Kazar the Savage. Kazar the Savage. There you go. Yeah, that was a good. I I liked that very much. I mean, and and I didn't Mm -hmm. know much about Kazar before that. It wasn't much to know, really. He it's like he comes from this place. He's got a big cat. What else do you need to know? Oh, and he's he's a secret lord of the British Empire. Right, we've heard that before. Uh, Somewhere, (laughs) but it really yeah, it always just struck me as odd that again he you know they put him in Astonishing Tales. I mean, he kind of kicks Doctor Doom out. Uh, taking over the whole book and then Kazar gets the big logo and Astonishing Tales gets the tiny logo and I think then it eventually I think the numbering I think they did a Kazar one but didn't eventually Kazar go off into his own book oh yeah um, Kazar stays in Astonishing Tales till I think 20 and then he goes off into his own book and Astonishing Tales continues for a few issues with it the living colossus created by Tony Isabella you always have to give Tony Isabella go. the credit Yes, and then Deathlock, my, my beloved yeah. Deathlock. That's a uh, that was our, we we've been doing what people don't know is we've been doing all the Marvel titles as podcasts in alphabetical order. So Deathlock <laughs> was, our, was our previous one, yes, right before Defenders, right. But so no one true. listened to that one. No, we but we keep going. Yeah. So this let let's get into Defenders fifty two if we may. Sure. Okay. This issue. I think these are kind of, and I don't mind talking right now because honestly, I'll say this not to not to put a crimp in your style. There's not a lot of plot going on in these. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a weird like he had a big idea for the Scorpio story, and then it kind of goes into a valley here for a little bit. A lot of a lot of fun, a lot of interesting bits, but yeah, let's yeah. We'll, we'll get into it. And a lot of interesting art stuff going on. Yeah. This issue has an October cover date. It went on sale July 19th, 1977. And um, the cover is by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya. Basically, the Hulk and Submariner. That's right. He's back, kids. The Hulk and Submariner are at each other's throats, essentially, on this cover. They're, you know, they're both got their fists raised and ready to punch and hit. And they're in like a like a construction site or something with like crumbling buildings and rubble on the ground and stuff like that. And the background are, 
you know, Nighthawk and Hellcat and Valkyrie all running, jumping, and swinging toward them. <laughs> this cover has two captions on it. Under the logo, right under the logo, it says, The Prince and the Power. And then at the bottom of the cover, it says, It's the Hulk versus Submariner. And the dynamic defenders are caught in the middle. Some great lettering. I, I can recognize a lot of letters, but I would guess this is either Danny Crespi or Jim Novak, but it's just really big, strong, powerful lettering. I, I love that kind of thing. It's it's a lot going on. I mean, two observations I make is, you know, I mean, it's a classic thing. Um, actually, it's a classic Hulk, haha. But, yes. you know, putting the Hulk against another hero like this is, is classic Marvel, you know, and, and uh, Hulk and Samariner, what is it? Is it... Um, Hulk, or is that the thing? Uh, Submariner Seven mm-hmm. is that versus the thing or versus the Hulk? I do not. Recall I can't remember. That but there's a type of cover that you know. I mean, this also kind of echoes sure. the Thor versus Hulk cover. But you know, yeah. it's it, it sort of it, it it it's a way to also it kind of really beefs up Submariner, right? By showing you know yes. him going up against the Hulk, so it makes and and I hadn't except for Supervillain Team Up, um, which I think has ended maybe by this point. Submariner's been kind of out of Submariner guy used to be a headliner is kind of you know faded in the Marvel universe so this is possibly yeah. a way to intro- reintroduce him. Uh yeah, yeah. The other thing that's kind of cool to me because we don't always get this kind of matchup is this the four defenders in the box are actually right. all on the cover doing something. Yeah. yeah. It's this is the team and they're yeah. I mean, they, they could have done floating heads, but they're actually all there sort of about to join the fray. So it's uh, uh-huh. it's it's, a, it's 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 dynamic. It's the dynamic defenders. It really is. And yeah, it's it's a it's a fun cover. It's um, like the sky is like a sort of dark grayish blue. It's kind of, you know, so the heroes really pop. Yeah, it's, it's and, interesting it's coloring. Really nice. It's not your typical... You get a lot of like red and white covers. It feels on on defenders, yeah. and this is one's different. Right, yellow. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the story's called "Defender of the Realm." Great title. By, yes. Absolutely. Uh, written by David Kraft. Art by Keith Giffen and Chick Stone. So we got another Kirby associated inker here, who I remember at the time kind of made a quick comeback to Marvel, seemingly because he needed some work. Previous to this, I don't know, maybe he went into comic strips or something, but like I remember in the late 60s, he was drawing some DC like Batman stuff or whatever, but then he kind of disappeared. So I don't know. Anyway, so this. Uh, this Stone Batman, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. It's not super memorable or anything, but like people like him and Joe Giella were given the chance to draw some comics and they, they looked fine. So. This issue and the next one have a bunch of weird asterisks, and we're going to start right away with one because this splash page shows the Submariner with his trident and a big red cape walking down Park Avenue in New York City, ignoring the police who are, like, looking at him and waving and going, hey, it's Submariner. Um, And he's he's ignoring them. But this page is drawn by Dave Cockrum. Oh. Unlike the rest of the issue. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff like that coming up. I don't know why, but it was a, an odd little time in the series. 
But anyway, he's walking along, and then people are asking him questions and saying, what are you doing here? And he's ignoring them. And then Hulk is on a rooftop looking down and saying, hey, I know that guy. It's that guy, Fishman, and he's my friend. Hulk says, like, the humans might be getting ready to attack Fishman, so I'm going to go and say hi to him and, and help protect him. And he leaps down from the rooftop and lands right in front of Submariner, who says, it's the Hulk. And Hulk does not say, yeah, I know it's the Hulk. Why are you saying that to me? <laughs> he says, Hulk is here to help you. But Submariner says, I don't have time for this and I don't have time for your childish behavior. I, and I don't have need of your help. And Hulk doesn't like that one bit. So he starts fighting the Submariner and smashes him right into the side of a uh, news van. And, you know, suddenly we're into a big brawl because the Hulk's mad. Yeah, when when um when Hulk first uh, recognizes Submariner, there's a great panel in the middle of that second page that almost looks lifted from, you know, like uh, Fantastic Four Hulk, Fantastic Four number 13 is it when the uh -huh. Hulk and you know it's just it's got such a Kirby flavor and add the chipstone right. inks and you really you know I, I I love Giffen's Hulk and yeah. all the kind of influences it it, it collects it, it is pretty great absolutely uh so Submariner gets up and tries to get away because he's on a mission and he doesn't want to be delayed but Hulk jumps up grabs him by the ankle and pulls him down again and their their fight is just getting underway. But meanwhile, we cut to behind the Iron Curtain where Dr. Tanya Belinsky is um, arriving at the headquarters of Sergei, the most powerful man in Russia, they say. Or Soviet Russia, excuse me, she says. But wait, this is one, one of the craziest captions ever. Oh, and well, they okay. explain... What? Go ahead. Oh, and may explain the, the splash page because it also says halfway around the world and several weeks earlier. Right. So it does kind of make it seem that the, the whatever the original structure of these pages were may have been moved around requiring a different splash page if they wanted to start off with the, you know. Uh, you were saying once, you know, that belief that like, hey, you know, the kid opens the comic and the first thing they see is that splash page. You want it to be something that's going to really draw them in, you know? Yeah, it's true. And this is weird, but not super compelling, especially because, you know, she's still in her winter coat and hat. Um, but <laughs> but not for not, long. Not for long. But it's just, boy, the design of these couple of pages of the setting is so bizarre because it looks like, the thing I would compare this to, this is like Sergei's sort of headquarters slash laboratory, and it almost looks like a theme park flume ride or something like that with like lots of pipes going everywhere and and a, a sort of um, angled runway coming down and tubes going up. And it's just all bananas crazy. Oh, and there's like a pink panel in the background with like some kind of Aztec looking artwork of like the sun with rays coming out of it. It's crazy. But with Kirby, yeah, it's, it's Kirby by way of Dr. Seuss. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. 
So anyway, the guy who drove her to this place says that Sergei would like you to please get in your red guardian costume while I slip into a radiation robe, he says. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and she doesn't even she doesn't even worry about this. I don't know why. It's like if I hear that <laughs> what did what did Oscar Wilde say? Avoid all circumstances that require new clothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know when when it, when 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 it calls for a radiation robe i think you know maybe that's not the job you want no it's it's true so she does get into her red guardian costume and she says she's thinking little does he realize this is just what i wanted a chance to get into change into battle garb you're not gonna get much of a chance to use it <laughs> but has the um, word garb ever been used outside of a comic book oh good question can't think of any time. Anyway, so on the next page, she sort of leaps through a window and f- to try to escape, finds a bunch of guys wearing like long cloaks who are going to stop her. You know, two of them are running at each other and she jumps up and they smash into each other. And then they they capture her, they grab her. And one of them pulls, puts the, the control cowl with the that's built into the radiation robe over her head and that will sap her will and it does suddenly she doesn't want to fight anymore and she's just um completely complacent uh, and and uh ready to comply with whatever they yeah. well ask. you need to accessorize what's a radiation robe without a compliance cowl or control right. <laughs> so um well, I, I want to say this though about that that shot of her kind of dodging the two guys in them oh yeah i mean this is definitely this one I'd have to probably call off more as a swipe. It's totally Tales of Suspense era Jack Kirby Captain America. Kind of, but that figure is a little like look, Giffen is not super consistent with the figure drawing. And to me, that looks like a Barry Smith figure. Right. Well, maybe. Career. But I mean, but I'm saying, but the original, the, I don't mean a swipe in the sense of a tracing, but certainly that's yeah. a move that. Oh, that yeah. Did. Um, certainly. And the, uh, you know, one of the things that again it made reminded me of again in a weird being a predictor in a way that it, it couldn't have been a predictor but the idea and this is a, this is going to be a black widow spoiler so spoiler alert turn your audio off for the next 30 seconds if you don't want this black widow spoiler but movie black widow the movie black widow black okay. widow mcu black have you seen it i did see it okay so but that there is this this I'll just say in a very generic way that there's connection between Red Guardian and Captain America or perhaps some history or perhaps some. So it was just weird because in the comics, I never connected those two characters, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And yet here I see a piece of art that reminds me. And then later that becomes a sort of slight connection in the MCU. It's sort of like Doctor Strange with time travel. I never thought of Doctor Strange and time travel as a thing in or time control, I should say, as a thing in the comics. But when we went back, and they made it a thing in the movies, but when we went back, it was all over the place. Uh, yeah, that's true. So, Cool. All right, so at the end of the page, one of these guys in the robe said, says to her, step this way, you're about to meet the presents. Hey, it's almost Christmas time. I'm about to meet some presents. <laughs> 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 Anyway, so then there's a splash page of um, a character who has his back to us, and he's in like a yellow hood 
not hooded, but like a robe looking thing with like a big purple collar and big purple cuffs. And he's sort of sitting at what looks like a combination giant cash register and keyboard. Yes. It's there is crazy. actually a, there are actually black and white keys at the on on the yes. but yes it does have a have a cash but it also has like a cashboard display a cash register display isn't that weird right get your receipt yeah right there are sort of tubes next to him going up like an or like it's a pipe organ and the whole like they're they're like way in the background you can see the figures who are you know leading Red Guardian to this guy he has white hair by the way. And they're sort of coming through. It almost looks organic, except that everything's sort of gleaming in metal, but it's very, everything's curved and right. rounded. And the, re, the the presence, whose face we still have not seen, says, you know, come forward, bring her to me. I would gaze upon my mate for the first time in the flesh. More mating in the Defenders. They love their mating. Yes. Yeah, I know. So he welcomes her to his domain and she's, she's got like no will to do anything. Um, he, t- the, the other guys all leave and he takes her uh, and leads her up these stairs and says that I have an incurable disease of the body. You have an incurable disease of the mind together. We will transcend mere human existence and be transformed into beings of a higher form in a nuclear explosion that will tear half of Europe apart. That's where we first see his face. And it's just like a regular face, but he's got very sort of, you know how Jack Kirby would draw like a Greco-Roman kind of god with curly hair. And yeah, stuff. Tyrannus is what he kind yeah. of reminds me of. There you go. I don't know what he's talking about with this incurable disease of the mind either. I've, there's been no indication that she has anything wrong with her up till now. Unless it's, I don't know if it's supposed to be like a political thing, like, con, you know, the communism oh, or the, you know, the allegiance to the state. That was the only thing I could sort of put together with that. Yeah. It's also mm-hmm. a very classic four panel, you know, latter day Jack Kirby getting through those pages a little faster by just doing the big four yeah. panel pages in the late 60s. Yeah. Well, that was when they went from twice up art to one and a half times up art and that was part of Kirby's adjustment was going from more panels to four. Oh, I didn't realize that was, that was sort of the inspiration for that. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that was part of the adjustment. Yes. So now we cut back to the Hulk and Submariner who are fighting their way across Manhattan. And there really isn't much to say here, except that they're just fighting, fighting, fighting. The next page is a full page, you know, a splash page where Submariner is sort of smashing the Hulk into the side of a building. The sound effect says, Doc Coom! And he, <laughs> yeah, and Submariner yells, Imperious Rex! And there's a little copy of Foom floating off to the side there. Oh, and there's there also, is. Oh, with Irving yeah. Forbish on the cover. <laughs> yes, which I wish happened, but it never did. Also, there's a very weird caption at the top of this page that says, I'm going to read it, Compared to the nuclear explosion calculated by codename Sergei to shatter much of Europe, the cataclysmic clash of the Incredible Hulk and the Savage Submariner as they abruptly charge into each other is next to nothing. Although it is understandable that bystanders would later file exaggerated reports that the entire island of Manhattan rocked on its foundations when these two titans came together with the force of celestial rams locking horns. It's like, what? 
there are so many things that are just kooky about that. Yeah, and again, it's still you know, and and again, when I look at these pages too, it's sort of like you could you know, well, he does the four panel thing again on one side, and then the big splash page. I mean, but these all, right. all these could be reversed these pages certainly. And again, I think they're still somehow. I think they're realizing the story is a little disconnected and trying to keep us like. Okay, there's still this threat of Sergey that happened we that started weeks ago apparently, you know, happening right. um in Russia. Yeah, it's just weird to me to have a the caption has information about a scene from earlier. <laughs> yes. It's like the caption should only talk about what's in front of you in my opinion. Right. And then it and talks then, about what's going to happen. And then it and says, then, yes, it's got like and, that footnote of in the future, people are going to file reports. They're going to exaggerate this. Yeah, right. And also to like denigrate this a little bit by saying, well, this isn't really that much compared to the big explosion that's going to happen. It's odd. All I know. And, it, and then it does make me wonder, I mean, is it, is it, is it craft? Is Goodwin going, oh, we, you know, you can't do this you know, big fight without, you know, it, it, if a fight yeah. was this big, it would bring in everybody else, you know, that kind of kind of well, thing, yeah, which is the real problem with every Marvel comic. I mean, anytime yes. somebody fights somebody in New York, two things, by the way, they're, they're right by the Marvel offices. Oh, they? <laughs> Park Are Avenue they? South. Oh, um, if they were there then, which I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think they might've been on Madison then, but yeah. Oh, okay. Well then, um, then Namor was just simply scouting real estate. Yes, I know. Um, because that was a funny thing at the beginning of the issue where the caption was saying how Park Avenue was like the spine of Manhattan. And I'm like, right. what about Fifth Avenue? <laughs> What's that, the liver? <laughs> <laughs> well, we know what Hell's Kitchen is. <laughs> yeah. So then we cut to a scene uh, at Richmond Enterprises where Kyle Richmond is at his desk in his regular clothes, he's got his tie open, his shirt sleeves rolled up, and he's in the middle of apparently a lot of stuff. And his, you know, Patsy Walker shows up to see him, and he says, "Patsy," and she says, "You're expecting Clint," which I had no idea what they were talking about when I was a kid. But Western star Clint Walker, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah, I think he was in Rawhide. I can't remember. Well, two, yeah, and, well, and two things struck me. I thought it was, I was like, wait a second. I was trying to remember if I missed some reference to Hawkeye or something like that. Oh, but, yeah, then I sure. did think Then I did think Clint Walker, but I also felt this was, then also I feel like they were trying to be a little dirty. Because, <laughs> because that's one of those ones you're not yep. supposed to, that's one of those words you're supposed to avoid. Yes. Um, if, you, if you'd like later, we can discuss my good friend Clint Flicker. So oh, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, she explains how Jack Norris just dropped him off. He's on his way to see Nick Fury to get his job at S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, so we got to tie up that loose end. And she asks Kyle to give her a tour of Richmond Enterprises. So they're sort of walking around. Then she they overhear somebody who's listening to a radio at work at work, I tell you. <laughs> say uh, with the news report coming over that the submariner and the Hulk are beating a tar out of each other in the middle of Manhattan. The streets have been cleared and the two of them go running the other way. Oh, and Kyle assumes it's Hulk's fault. Oh, terrific. Greenies on another rampage. I don't even have my jetpack. Oh no. Without it, I'm nothing but an eccentric in a bird suit. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> anyway, as they're running away, you can see shadows that show like the shape of, 
their costumed identities, which is kind of fun. Oh, and, and there's actually a footnote here that says he doesn't have his jetpack because the ringer destroyed it last issue. Oh, he didn't have a backup jetpack. It's a little sad for your multi-billionaire, but whatever. Should have invested <laughs> in more jetpacks. Yeah. And then maybe right. Kyle, we'd all have one by now. Yeah, thank you, Kyle. Thanks for nothing. So they keep fighting. Anyway, we're back to Submariner and Hulk fighting, sorry. And now they're like smashing through a building or something and you know, Submariner's pointing out like, hey, I just got my subjects back and, you know, if I don't beat you, I'm gonna, I might lose them again, Hulk. And there's a, a footnote to see Supervillain Team Up 13. Everyone should. I love Supervillain Team Up. It's great. <laughs> I love Supervillain Team Up when it was Yeah, but, but but that is also another one that just, because I mean, again, just gets passed from writer to writer. Oh, God, yes. It just becomes like, and artist to artist, and it becomes like so twisty-turny, but it was so much fun. Yeah. Anyway, oh, and then uh, Submariner unleashes a power we've almost never seen because the Hulk pulls up like the floor and some power lines and things, and Submariner absorbs an enormous electrical charge, which he hasn't done since Fantastic Four number six, and then he blasts it back out at the Hulk, and it looks really cool. It's like all Kirby dots and you know, glowing power and things, but the Hulk doesn't really care one way that doesn't bother the hulk a bit no it is it is really cool but man did he just pull this one out of nowhere i mean <laughs> yes that was one of those things even in finance court number six where it was like okay this is some kind of ridiculous made-up power it's like yeah because even in fantastic four number six he had 40 years of history or uh-huh. 30 well kirby years? kirby just would make up whatever seemed to fit you know the, the moment and well yeah, and I mean, and also, I mean, I don't think in, in the in the 40s, he never had a giant horn that called forth uh, no. giant sea creatures either, right? Pretty sure not. That is like one of the greatest comics of the early Marvel age. Number Bar four? Uh, number six. Oh, number six, hey, yeah. The, I, I love that comic so much. Anyway, um, they're still fighting, whatever, and Hulk smashes the Submariner up out of the sewers and into the streets again. There's a, a moment where they're like standing off against each other, and then this this is by the way this touches on what you said before at the beginning of the next page, where we're getting that news report that's saying where are all the other heroes? It's three, it's three tiny little panels. First panel is Spider Man, Peter Parker, actually, in a crowd and of two people, and he says, "Terrific! The crowd has me locked in." Because he can't like get free to get to be Spider Man, I guess. And then they show the inside of the Baxter building. There's no one home. And then they show Avengers Mansion, and Jarvis is there saying, "Oh dear, the Avengers are all elsewhere." Right. So <laughs> that's like a very small amount of real estate to spend explaining that. Nope, ain't no heroes around here going to help anybody. Well, remember, wasn't that in an earlier? Um... There's another issue that we read earlier, and it had that strange thing too, where it had a whole page, like not twelve panels uh-huh. or sixteen panels, and it was literally what every other character in the Marvel universe was doing at the time. Oh wow! I yeah, I vaguely remember this. But the uh-huh. um, but yeah, it will. Well, it's also the other thing that happens in this issue too that's kind of interesting that DC never dealt with. You know, I mean with. Not or rarely dealt with, even though they had characters in the media like Clark Kent and Superman. But the newness of Marvel and the media savviness of the 
young writers is kind of like, well, you know, if, if, if Hulk and Samariner are, you know, fighting on Park Avenue, ABC News is going to be there with cameras. Yeah, it's a, it's a good storytelling device. Yeah. And then, you know, and then and Englehart used that in Avengers when they announced right. their new lineup, you know, like all these things where they were very savvy that if these characters existed as publicly in a place like New York, they would be scrutinized by the media. Yeah, agreed. And yeah, it's a, it's one of those levels that DC titles tended not to go to. Uh, so anyway, a car comes crashing through the police barricades at that very moment, and the cops are running away from it. And um, oh, look, the license plate says KLR three twenty one. So KLR, Kyle Richmond. We don't know what the L stands for. Oh, probably Lyle, Kyle Lyle Richmond. Really? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, and Bob it's Bob Loblaw, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Nighthawk and Hellcat jump out of that car, which, by the way, he's plowed into a uh, fire hydrant or something. Oh no, a, not a fire hydrant. It's a it's a parking meter. Okay. So the the car's trashed, the meter's trashed, and. She, you know, they're running out of the car and he's saying like, oh, my accountant's going to love that. And she says, at least you don't have to put any nickels in the meter. Um, so they see, you know, they, they look up and see Hulk and uh, Submariner fighting and she's going, are you sure we should get involved here? And he's going like, oh, I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure at all. Hey, no, he's talked me out of it. Talk me. He's the first. Yeah. He's like the guy, you know, the guy in the meme. Change my mind. <laughs> this is the first yes. change my mind meme. Wow. That's a that's true. But they do kind of jump into action. And as they're jumping into action, we cut to another scene. Well this oh, time. Oh, well you the it oh, was please. all set up for the punchline. It was a setup for the punchline that he decides he'd rather face the Hulk instead of his accountant. Oh yeah. Who, who's funny. been on him about all the expenses and the losses from the ringer, et cetera. And the broken cars and whatnot, yeah. yeah. Uh, then we cut to another scene where Valkyrie is... It's a movie theater. It's that that um, double feature that we were promised an issue or two back of Death Wish and the Man Who Fell to Earth. And this is a real interesting moment because um, we cut... You know, we see the inside of the theater. They actually used, like, a little uh, movie still of David Bowie and the man who fell yeah. to earth on the screen. That's kind of cool. And, you know, there's a, a sign that points that over here is the smoking section of the theater because Valkyrie is sitting near somebody who's smoking a pipe and she's getting more and more annoyed by it. And she finally turns around and says, Hey, this is the no smoking section. Can't you extinguish that foul source of asphyxiation? She says, and the guy says, oh, I mind, and I won't. And then she grabs his, <laughs> the pipe out of his mouth and breaks it in half. And the person sitting next to her, I guess Ledge it is, says, he's the drama professor at ESU. And, oh, yeah, she says, Ledge, I don't care. And you should be able to identify him because he's wearing a turtleneck. <laughs> Therefore... You know, if you lift your arms, we'll see the uh, elbow patches. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. And then um, later, after the movie is over, Valkyrie and Ledge and um, Dollar Bill are all at a donut shop. 
And for some reason, <laughs> they've got like two panels of word balloons about the new Mickey Mouse Club. Oh, we're inter- we're interrupting the new Mickey Mouse Club because they have an update on the Hulk Submariner, Submariner battle. And uh, the waitress is going, oh, them superheroes ruin everything. Yeah, and that Funicello was going to guest star, it says. Yeah. Uh-huh. But see, and then the other side of it is showing that while there's all this media coverage to the normal person who's been living in New York, you know what? Hulk fighting Submariner, just another day. I'd rather see Annette Funicello. On the on the new Mickey Mouse Club. Uh-huh. So the three of them arrive at the donut shop and um Ledge apparently is kind of a mooch. He says, Oh, I'll have a Bismarck dollar bill and Donald says, okay, buy yourself one. <laughs> My offer of a free piece of pastry only extends to Valk here. It was only says, for the lady. Yes. Oh, my God. Does he have that voice? I hope. That, I'd like to think so. <laughs> Dollar bill, I think so, maybe. Yeah. But it's weird that he calls her Valk, unless that's Valk. just a typo. Anyway. Oh, and then the professor shows up at the at the same donut shop, and they start arguing about that, you know, uh, how things went down at the movie theater, but um, the, the professor kind of admires her for the immediate solution to such rude disregard for the rules. And she says, I accept your apology. I'm Professor Turk. You must be new on campus. Anyway, and then they sort of talk about how there's this other guy who's new on campus. He's called Lunatic. And he's weird. He's got eyes they're all glassy, like kind of like the Silver Surfer. In fact, I think it's the Silver Surfer in disguise, says Ledge. And Dollar Bill thinks he's an idiot for saying that, you know. Obviously, he wears contact lenses. And the professor says, yes, he's, Lunatic has made a, an impression on campus. A lasting impression. Anyway, then we cut back to the Hulk and Submariner still fighting. But then the claws of the... Hellcat kind of shoot out toward the Hulk and he thinks that she's attacking him but he says no 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 I'm just I guess trying to get your attention she doesn't really say it but she's you know trying to they're trying to interrupt the battle and Submariner starts attacking Nighthawk and Nighthawk says hey I'm not going to fight you I'm a defender and so are you and this is so weird because Neymar goes defender? Oh, I almost forgot. I was a defender. It was so long ago. It was so long ago. Even though they kept putting my name in the masthead, I forgot. (laughs) All those times I denied that there was even such a thing as the defenders. Now, that would have been cool if he said that. Yeah. (laughs) He said, you know, I never believed in the defenders. So, yeah, you're kind of catching me off guard here. Right. So he says, you know. I was going to try to find the Fantastic Four, but maybe you defenders can help me instead because Atlantis is in grave peril and there's some sort of radioactive leakage from a Soviet underground nuclear test site contaminating a vital area of sea, fertile seabed. We've got to stop it and I need you, we need your help. And um, Hulk has calmed down by now. Hellcat introduces herself to Submariner Nighthawk says, your people can't go into that area with the radioactive radiation, rather. Uh, but the Hulk can. He can take just about anything. He's got an incredibly high tolerance to radiation. 
And um, Namor says, well, that sounds great. If you'll help Hulk. And Hulk says, Hulk will do it. Hulk is sorry he hit fish, man. <laughs> for 27 pages. Anyway, that's the end of the issue. And then it says, next, a lunatic on campus. The defender's in hot water, literally. Plus, codename Sergei and the Red Guardian, born again, back in the USSR. Not to mention more riotous raves from the readers. So that's the end of the issue. Da 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 da. I feel like a lot of it was a buildup to get to that back in the USSR, um, <laughs> you know, title for for next time. Maybe which they don't even use, by the way. No, they didn't. Not even <laughs> not on the. Yeah, it suddenly has a the story has a new name next time around. Right. Yeah, it just feels you know a bit disjointed. I mean, a lot of this talk yeah. about lunatic, but you know, we only really saw the one attack at the end of last issue, you know, and, you know, and presume mm. that's lunatic, but we don't really know. And he's, he's a pipe smoker. There was a moment when they were talking about the sweet smell of the smoke as I was trying to go, is, or is he trying to imply it's marijuana? But my grandfather used to smoke a pipe and it, the tobacco pipe tobacco has a real sweet smell. That, that's, that's what I realized. It was the pipe. It wasn't about, yes. it, it wasn't about that. Cause when, when it becomes the pipe, but it's sort of like, you know, you're reading it like, like sort of, yeah, with, with you know, forty year, you know, however long it's been. Uh, well, look, I mean, year later lenses. These guys were definitely trying to get away with whatever they could here and there, so they might have been trying to do a little bit of a double meaning. But I mean, you remember the uh, Captain Marvel story with the LSD and stuff, and you know, they oh, yeah. definitely were looking for opportunities to slide in a little references or whatever. Those who know, know. <laughs> uh-huh. And those who and, know, know it's a no-no. And in terms of the riotous raves... Um, oh, yeah. You know, again, very positive pay, uh, notes about the Scorpio saga. So it's uh-huh. letters page on issue 48. You know, someone calling it, like, you know, sort of the best issue since 32, which was the beginning of the Nighthawk story. Um, the Nighthawk's brain story. So I think right. that's a fair comparison. And our friend, uh, I think he's in the next issue as well. Henry Kujawa is kind of hitting every oh, yeah. issue of Defenders at this point. So yep. he is he is sitting down and writing the Defenders a letter every month. And then on the back page is um, mm-hmm. an ad for Orca, the killer whale. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. that movie. I did not see it. Oh, you didn't see it? No. Oh, it's terrible, but it's... Uh, <laughs> Is anyone good at it? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a big... It was trying to be the next Jaws. Yeah, oh, I know that. You know <laughs> Richard Harris oh. and Charlotte Rampling, but it's got like a really... I mean, it is like a modern Moby Dick, and it's kind of a tragedy, and, and it's trying to make Orca the hero. Orca's, co- Orca's coming to find uh, uh, Richard Harris for for killing... Either Orca's baby or Orca's mate or something. I mean, literally, it's the it's it's it's, it's sort of the whales. You know, it's what if what if Jaws from the shark's point of view? Except it's it's Orca is coming after him. And this movie, again, spoiler alert: if you haven't seen Orca from thirty five years ago, <laughs> it ends with one of the most absurd scenes, which is Orca gets his revenge by Richard Harris thinks he's safe because he goes out on like an ice floe. Mm. To kind of get away from Orca, and Orca, okay. like, you know, kind of goes up in the air and slams down on it to flip him, oh. like on a on a teeter totter, like you know, and and, and, <laughs> he, and he and he goes 
crashing into you know the ice and snow and 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 dies and you know realizes he was a bad man to do whatever he did to orca's family man now i got my recollection of it i i saw it once when i was you know a kid (laughs) all right well that's pretty good memory well, I, I, uh, yeah, no, I refreshed myself a little bit, not because of this, because someone oh, else I was see. talking. Actually, because someone else in another like back issue group just sort of said, "Hey, remember when this was on the back of every mat?" And I was like, "Oh yeah," but I mean, I, I do yeah. remember the movie. I what I did, I refreshed myself by going, "Is that the movie where he flips the guy on the iceberg and, <laughs> and, and, and ice flow?" And then, yes, it was. Wow, so fantastic! All right, Defenders fifty three fifty three went on sale. August 17th, 1977, November cover date. Oh, look at that. 35 cent cover price. I didn't even notice. Oh, price went up. Price went up again. Yeah. Cover by uh, George Perez and Bob Wyachek. And I'd love to stop for a moment and just tip my hat to George Perez, who was, you know, such a great artist. And uh, is. Is well is still, but I mean, back in the seventies when he first yeah. showed up, I was so excited by his work on the defend. Well, on on the Avengers and Fantastic Four and Inhumans, um, that's mostly where I saw him. But then he did these Defenders covers um, that were a lot of fun too. He wasn't a big part of Defenders lore, but yeah, I mean, but for me, in terms of Marvel, when I first started reading Marvel, even though he was a newcomer, he was the my first issues of Avengers and Fantastic Four were his first issues of Avengers and Fantastic Four. So oh, from wow. my point of view, those seemed like the biggest books, you know, next to Spider-Man. Uh, and so I thought, oh, this is their best artist. And I, I mean, he was, you know, he yeah. was just starting out, but he was that he was trusted with those two major, um, major series and kept coming back to them. I mean, he, he didn't, wasn't as, you know, for whatever reasons, I mean, he was always quick with deadlines. So I think there are a lot of other scheduling reasons that they would move him around, but mm-hmm. um, you know, over the next, you know, 40, 50 issues of both these series, he would, he would be on and off quite a bit. And, um, and obviously coming back to some major runs on Avengers later, you know, not to mention, of course, you know, Teen Titans and, and, and DC and, you know, and, and his announcement, you know, uh, in our timeline happened a couple of weeks ago and it's, it, you know, very powerful, very emotional. Yes. You know, but I think it's really nice to see how much, you know, from pros and fans, how much love and support people are putting, putting out to this person who, who not only is a great artist, but from everybody who has ever met him. Um, I think I only had the, met him once a long time ago in the seventies. Um, but you know, no one's got a bad word to say about George Perez. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I only met him once or twice myself, just like really in passing at conventions. And he always like was one of those guys who, even though he wasn't really working for DC at the time, maybe, or had other places to be, he would swing by the DC booth like during setup and sort of say, Hey, how's it going guys? And it was appreciated. Yeah. There was always a, a weird sense of, an exciting sense of awe in his comics. There was always like a character, like the Beast or Hellcat or whoever, who seemed to just be going like, wow, this is fantastic what's going on here. Yeah, and, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, that first issue of Avengers, even though it's inked by Vince Coletta, I mean, yeah. it starts with this really exciting shot of Beast just bouncing down the street in New York. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a new character to the Avengers. 
you know, he, I think he joins in that issue and it was Englehart setting up the Patsy Walker and Hellcat stuff, but it just, again, it was so dynamic. It was like, it yeah. always, his, his splash pages, his, it always, it always drew you in. And then when he did something like really, you know, cool and noirish, like, you know, the Donna Troy story, he just really adapted to what the story was, was, was about, you know? Yeah. I wish I um, had a copy of JLA Avengers. I don't know what happened to my copy of it. I definitely had one at some point. But. Yeah, we can't. When we do get them, you know, whether it's the issues or the you know paperback, I mean, can't. I mean, just can't keep it in in um you know you know uh, you know over the years since it's mm-hmm. been out of print, it always goes very quickly. One of the things I posted when all this happened, I sort of joined. You know, I mean, you know, I saw someone say it that morning and thought, oh, this is a great idea, and I yep. want to repeat it. Um, you know, one can hope whatever the reasons have been for DC and Marvel not coming to an agreement to, to reprint this one would hope that it is such a tribute to, to what George loves doing, you know, the crowd scenes and the, you know, the, I mean that crowd, you know, the team scenes, the multiple characters, it's, 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 it's almost the ultimate George Perez story uh, that hopefully they can find a way at least as a tribute to somehow bring this book back into print so people can uh, enjoy it. Cause it literally two weeks ago, right before he made this announcement, a young man walked in and said, how do I get Avengers mm. versus, you know, JLA Avengers. And I, I said, I wish I could tell you, I, I, I can't get it for you. He right. goes, well, I saw you had it in the store, you know, last year. I'm like, yeah, when we get it, we get it, but it doesn't last very long. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it but, really should just be in print and yeah. there's no good reason for it not to be. It seems petty and it, it can, and certainly any, this would be the time to put aside any, um, you know, legal petty issues of, yeah. you know. So this cover, first of all, I noticed that Valkyrie is no longer in the corner box and Submariner's back there. They had him what? ready to go. Oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> How dare they? Anyway, like I said, covered by George Perez, inked by Bob Wyacek, who gives a real nice texture to the art. And in the center is Red Guardian, who's sort of standing in the midst of a nuclear explosion, eyes glowing, Kirby dots all over her. And then in the foreground are our four defenders from that corner box, Submariner, Hellcat, Nighthawk, and Hulk, all kind of cowering from the back from the explosion. Yeah, and, and shielding their eyes. Yeah. A bit of an homage to X-Men 101, maybe? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And um, there's two captions. One says, in a circle, Now the Red Guardian reborn! Will it be as friend or foe? And then another caption that says the power principle. And then this uh, issue is the power principle part one, the prince and the presence. And this starts a couple of issues in a row that have very weird disjointed art credits and also backup stories. This is a short issue. So I'm sure we'll get through it in no time. Cause that, that's what always happens. Yes. <laughs> Even though they changed the co- corner box in the cover, the uh, description of the team on page one did not change. It still says Valkyrie is in the team. So anyway, credits are Dave the Dude Craftsman. And then it says creative Dave Cockrum, Keith Giffen, 
Mike Golden, and Terry Austin, artisans. So this splash page, I think, is the only thing that Dave Cockrum drew, drew. I actually looked up, you know, who drew what. But Terry Austin inks the whole thing, and it kind of gives it a, a unified look, which is great. And it's real early in his career, but he's doing dynamite work, you know. So the splash page is the team and a couple of random Atlanteans way in the background, and then way in the foreground, the Submariner, who's sort of brooding, and they're all in this submarine kind of ship underwater. They're heading toward Atlantis. Hulk is in a chair, and, like, Nighthawk and is over in one, another corner, and Hellcat's sort of sitting up on a shelf, not like a cat. They're moving along underseas and the the one of the Atlanteans who's like the pilot of the ship or whatever saying how long it's going to take to get there and Hunk's like I don't know you know he doesn't understand time but he wishes we'd get there already because he's hungry and Submariner starts explaining how you know with each passing moment the danger increases and um, the threat of nuclear annihilation looms over Atlantis and he's getting he's very upset because they can't take care of this problem fast enough understandably but then they're just about to get there and uh, Hellcat sees Atlantis ahead and says cheese and crackers (laughs) thanks Hellcat and then there's a great splash page of Atlantis and how they're sort of approaching it and I think it's really mostly down to the inking making this page great. It's, you know, towers and a big sort of egg-shaped building or space or something. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's really cool. And this is Atlantis. Okay, thank you. This might be the first... Yeah, I think this is the first of the Michael Golden pages. He he yeah. drew about four pages or six pages in the issue. But um, they're all getting out of the ship and the earth the, the surface dwellers are wearing helmets... And then they get to a, a space where they can sit in a large sort of fishbowl of air so they can eat. And Hulk's like chowing down. People are bringing them food once, you know, after one after another. And there's people, you know, entertainment going on for their guests. And then Submariner says, enough. Gaiety must give way to serious affairs of state. And he hits the table and. All the people who are entertaining them leave, including all the women in the room, <laughs> except for Hellcat. So we know what kind of society Atlantis is. And Hellcat says, don't look at me, fellas. I'm just one of the gang. <laughs> uh, and then on the next page, they're sort of talking about, you know, the danger of, of trying to tackle this nuclear radiation and everything. And there's like a diagram of... Um, where the problems lie and things like that. And, you know, there's vibrational analysis. The scientists, our scientists have determined that the lethal emissions originate from somewhere in this subterranean network. It's all a lot of double talk about radiation, bad fish food. Good (laughs) fish food. Good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Where have I heard that before? (laughs) Then, then we cut to the Soviet union where the uh, underground testing facility is. And, how we see um, Sergei and Red Guardian together and um, 
they're sort of in the midst of this mist, swirling mists of cobalt radiation baths, whatever that means. Sergey is sort of spouting a lot of like big fancy sentences that don't really mean much. Like he says, out of anguish is born ecstasy. The past few weeks with you, Tanya, my dear, have been nirvana. And she is, you know, with her uh, free will subjugated. She's saying, never have I known such sensitivity in a man, (laughs) my beloved. (laughs) I like it. It was better than cats. (laughs) And it's strange. It's another, even though he had had to come in to clean up the Red Raja storyline, but there is kind of, again, it's this kind of all attempt at being an all-powerful presence, pardon the pun, who yeah. wants to reshape the world in some personal philosophy. Yes. Uh, true. So it's it's very vague, though, about what he's trying to accomplish here. Yes. And when he says that, you know, tomorrow, or at the end of the page, he says, I am at last to be fulfilled tomorrow when we undergo the ultimate nuclear transmogrification together. And then the caption says, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Then we cut back to Manhattan, and there's a page where Valkyrie and Clea are chit-chatting about how tough college registration has been and what a pain in the butt it was and I'm kind of stranded because Kyle's nowhere and uh, so I don't have a lift anywhere and Aragorn's out at the writing stables so I don't know what to do and and is this a golden page or is this like just Austin by himself that's a great question I think it might be just Austin by himself it didn't look like it didn't look like golden to me but it doesn't really look like Giffen either. And I mean, Austin really didn't ever draw much solo, but when he did, it kind of looked like this. So maybe. Looks very Giordano. Yeah, definitely. Which of course makes sense because he was trained by Giordano. That's cool. I hadn't thought of that. Valkyrie says basically, you know, Oh, got to get to class. So she goes down to take the subway and, She's never been on the subway before, and she says, eh, it doesn't seem so bad. And the next panel, it's like, uh-oh, subway car getting crowded. And then third panel, subway car very crowded. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next page is golden drawing, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Some of this looks like John Workman, too, if you ever remember what his drawing looked like. I, You know, I don't. Oh, he drew some really cool stories in Star Reach. Oh, okay. She kind of has uh, a, a brief meltdown over how crowded the subway is and like yells and uh, pushes people out of her way and stuff and then gets off the subway train just in time to see um, a guy in a green costume with a big long sort of pole that he's carrying uh, as a weapon, purple gloves, purple boots, and a purple afro and white skin. He looks like early Lobo, as a matter of fact, although Lobo wouldn't show up for another three or four years. Yeah. But he reminds me of early Lobo. Anyway, and the cops are chasing him, and then um, Valkyrie sees, you know, sees what's going on and trips him to stop him and uh, whatever, and the guy looks at her sort of 
registers that maybe he knows her possibly and then he runs off and you know the cops are still chasing him but valkyrie goes on, on her way to class or to school back to the registration problems and the next page is a really weirdly which kind of limits the number of suspects because yeah how many people does valkyrie know <laughs> well she doesn't recognize him he kind of recognizes her right no but that's what i'm saying and that's only in the and that's only in the caption anyway but yes right. the readers are going to go readers like point of view it's like okay it must be one of the five people she met at college <laughs> in the last two issues right and it's probably not the the woman who gave her a hard time because she had the wrong forms Right. During registration. <laughs> Although that would be quite the twist. Wouldn't it? You know, I just realized that big splash page earlier of Atlantis, and I was saying that they had that big um, oval, like egg-shaped kind of structure. Yeah. It's it's the ship they were in. That's the ship. And it was... Oh, it because, docked? Uh, yeah, because on this page, you can oh. see it on the next couple of panels. Yeah, yeah. No, I through. went back to the first page, too. You're right. How about that? Weird. It is weird. It's a weird sort of design for a ship it doesn't really make sense because in water you want things that are you know i don't want to say aerodynamic but basically aerodynamic more because, bullet shaped than yes than galactus head shaped yes which is what they've made this it's very important my brother will be the first to tell you because he did his thesis in college um for his master's degree in engineering about the way water moves around the conning tower of a submarine <laughs> okay, so he knows some stuff but um on the one side of the page you've got five panels sort of going down that show the approach of this ship to the area where the ra the radiation is giving them trouble and then on the other side of the page you've got four or five panels of um sergey and red guardian getting ready to they're going to start a countdown and he's putting on some big crazy helmet for for it but they're going to start a countdown to nuclear detonation that will destroy all of Europe, apparently, and probably Atlantis, too, while we're at it. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. And then and the next page is um, another Michael Golden page sure. where, again, six panels, but like the top on the left side is all the Sergey and Red Guardian stuff. And it's just basically the countdown is counting down. And then on the other side are the defenders going, um, uh-oh, radiation alarm. It's getting really bad. And the ship's hull suddenly buckles and water starts pouring in. So they're in big trouble. It doesn't really say what causes it other than the radiation. Although it does say, like, um, there's the waters begin to boil and erupt. The land shudders and tears asunder and the very air itself is singed. So, hot water breaks ship, I guess. Well, no, and there is a, well, there's a there's some sort of nuclear explosion he set off. Well, it doesn't seem like it's happened yet. Although we get down to the one in the countdown, but you know, you don't see the explosion. Well, you see the effect of it, and then you see the next the newspaper page, which is just it's yes. an odd way of doing it. It is an odd way of doing it, right? Like they don't show you the explosion; they just sort of sort of show you the aftermath or the repercussions, and then on the next page. You're right. There's a big splash page of like clippings from a newspaper. Killer quake jolts Europe. And then on the like, because the shape of the clipping is odd, you know, it makes space for panels to show through uh, a nuclear explosion and buildings collapsing and like a cliffside crumblings and houses are falling off it and stuff like that. 
and Belgrade, Moscow, Bucharest, Rome, all are affected, apparently. Latveria. Even Latveria, yeah, it's on the map. That's cool. And then on the very last page, another splash page where it's just sort of Sergei is now is standing there. He's absorbed all this radiation and power, and he's the presence, and he's like in an armor with... You know how sometimes people tie their cable knit sweaters <laughs> around their waists? Their That's kind of what it looks like. Their sweat, yeah, or sweatshirt, right? That's kind of what it looks like. He's got like a, a flowing purple fabricy thing around his waist. But other than that, he's in like golden armor with like big shoulder pieces and a giant egg shaped helmet that's projecting light out of it. And it says, I'm going to just read this caption from the previous page. It says, and above ground, as codename Sergei once predicted, the effects of the awesome atomic explosion are indeed far reaching, considering a fearsome underground detonation so powerful that it creates artificial earthquakes afar. And then imagine if you can, last page, the utter intensity of the terrible inferno at the heart of the nuclear holocaust. It is here, deep underground, in this fiery core of sheer cataclysmic chaos, that a truly ineffable transmogrification transpires. Atomized, irradiated, and energized all in less than a single second, a bizarre being takes shape in the white heat of fission, form born of force, presence born of power, the presence. So... This guy's he's something to contend with. He's a big deal. Yep. <laughs> That's the end of the story because it is a short story. We're going to explain why in a moment. Next, you might say our hapless set of undersea superheroes are wet behind the ears. I, I would not say that. And you'd Sweet be right. <laughs> Defenders in the depths. Don't miss the special surprise story starring Clea immediately following our letters page this ish. Well, let's just go straight to the letters page before we get If you would. That. There is a note. There's a um, a authorial acknowledgments from David Anthony Kraft. <laughs> Far more frequently than I would like, the press of duties and the peculiarities of my personality come into direct conflict with the harsh demands of a monthly deadline. Mm. On such occasions in the immediate past, I have resorted to the often sporadic, mostly incidental, but highly appreciated assistance of several stalwarts to help me dialogue certain scenes in the defenders for random collaboration of a particularly offbeat sort by sincere regards to energetic ed hannigan dauntless don mcgregor Mm. and jolton john warner hang loose honchos (laughs) so i mean yeah and, and, and and i was thinking about don mcgregor during that last panel as you were reading it yeah and again they're and again, just more the letters just are more praise of you know the Storio, the Storio, the Scorpio storyline. Um, <laughs> we'll just call it the Storio. Who remembers Storio from now on? Yes. And oh wait, oh, and there is there is there is an interesting like no prize type of thing. Mm. Can, have you considered another reason for Scorpio's hatred of Nick Fury? That Jake is a middle aged, that Jake is middle aged, feels his useful strength depleted, his vitality drained. Well, Nick hasn't aged since World War II due to the Infinity Formula. <gasps> Nick Fury is actually half his younger brother's age and will stay that way with, with regular serum injections. Wow. Um, Scorpio must feel as a mortal wood in Asgard. It's enough to drive a man to suicide or else to murder. No. 
So Dang. it's an interesting observation of looking for more of the, you know, uh, sibling rivalry. Um, although I don't think, you know, again, I think, I think that infinity formula story wasn't one that really got brought into, you said, when we talked about last time, yeah. uh, you said, you know, some people just immediately disregarded it. Yeah. I think Stan Lee was uh, uh, pretty much on the record saying he didn't like that story. Right. And it kind of just never really got used much as far right. as I can tell, you know, the, the concept. I mean, people, understandably, because it, it's just sort of a, an explanation. It's not, you know, really. Right. It's an excuse for Howard Chaykin to draw Nick Fury looking 80 years old in a panel or two, as I recall. Oh, right. Oh, we saw because we saw his real age and then he took the formula. Yes. Yeah. Because it was about him. It was about him. Someone keeping him from like the, the story was based on they were keeping it from him and he had yeah. to get it back in the end. Yep. Uh, anyway, so as we mentioned earlier, this is I think we mentioned it. This is kind of a short story. The first the the lead story is 16 or 17 pages or something, maybe even less. And then there's a backup story starring Clea, the Mystic Maiden. And we're not going to go into much detail on this other than to say it's written by Naomi Basner, who really wrote only a couple of stories, art by Sandy Plunkett and Tony Sammons. And it looks very pretty, and it's just about Clea with a mugger in Central Park who turns out to be a mystic kind of person who wants to, you know, control her and and doesn't want to wear a shirt. Yeah, and and what's his name? And Nick, Nick, I was calling him Nicotinus because I thought he smoked, but it's like uh-huh. Nicodemus is, is his. Uh, but he, and he's not one of our. He's not one of our silly wizards from from past defenders. What, what was the purpose? So, and the story is basically he, he he catches her. He's going to he's going to use her powers to empower himself. Then he has her prisoner. He obviously is going to come up with something to do with her. Which is kind of creepy, and then yeah. she just hits him over the head with a with a, a table lamp or something. Uh, yep, the end. I mean, look, it's a very short story written by somebody who only wrote a few stories and probably didn't have, you know, hadn't hadn't exercised those muscles long enough to really be a great storyteller. Although this is a serviceable for a, a vignette. It is a vignette. I mean, yeah, it's not going to add anything to the, there's, there's nothing, you know, and it's doing a Clea story. I mean, is it really, I mean, it's a tryout piece. Yeah, pretty and much. There were a bunch of these at the time. And again, maybe they were part of the plan as well for whether it was, you know, Hey, somebody, you know, screwed up a deadline. Well, we can put a Clea backup in there. I mean, I don't know what else you would do with a Clea right. backup. I guess it could only really go in Doctor Strange or Defenders, you know? Yeah, right. And by the way, Sandy Plunkett, you know, who's a terrific penciler, I think, really hardly has drawn that much ever either. And Tony but, Sammons yeah. was was norm was there was there a pencil another penciler that he was normally linked with? No, he didn't really do that much inking on anyone else either. I mean, he he drew uh that series Dakota North. That's what it was. Yeah, and he drew um, a couple of Hulk stories, I want to say, from Marvel Fanfare. Again, not a prolific cartoonist, but he always good when he showed up. Yeah. No, I remember, so. yeah, maybe, you know, yeah, and this has got kind of a heart, you know, that, that almost like a DC horror kind of style to it, too. So maybe mm. I'm remembering, um, I maybe know. he did some stuff in those kind of books. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fill-in. Yeah, it, it, it is a space filler, you know. 
and we're going to get another one of those next issue, but not with Clea. I forget who it is. Right. Exactly. And, and I, and I think, I mean, not to, not to jump ahead, but I, I mean, well, we already talked about it in the previous episode, I think in one of the Marvel masterworks introductions, it also mentions that uh, Keith Giffen was, was, was also was leaving around this time. So that's uh-huh. why I kind of, that, that was part of the breakdown where he was getting work from DC and that's uh, that's yeah, kind yeah. of what was throwing his his schedule off because it doesn't feel like he's really there. Although obviously there's a Keith given influence in Lunatic and the presence, it feels he's not really there as a as a strong. I mean, is he even getting a co? I mean, he's not getting a co story credit at this point. No. So it feels like they had you know the pages, and I imagine. I mean, I don't know. I mean, when they're doing you know plot art style. Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine the artist might go, oh, I want to do this scene of, you know, Valkyrie. Oh, I want to do the scenes of the presence first. Oh, I want to do. I mean, you could see in the previous issue, it was all that really kind of deep, curvy, Kirby homage stuff with the presence that mm-hmm. was uh, and Sergey with that was kind of interesting to uh, Giffen. And so and the fight with with, you know, with with the but it does feel like those pages could have been and maybe the pages in the next issue as well could have been moved around in a different way. And that certainly there's a certain uh-huh. amount of improv going on here, almost even, even in terms of the Atlantean feast, right? It's kind of like, it's like you have this scene of they get to Atlantis, they have, a, you know, it's like going to Oz. And then it's like, suddenly, <laughs> no, we have to stop and we have to get on with business, but right. you know, we needed to fill out some pages. So we're going to have an Atlantean feast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, it's also the, that kind of like, Okay, we've brought a bunch of heroes to a new setting. What are the people where people need their help? What are they going to do? Give them a feast. You know, right. it's sort of the inevitable A, a to B to C kind of story right. telling. I think we only have one more issue drawn by Giffen, sadly. Yeah, and then we go. Yeah, then the uh, the special guest artists start showing up. <laughs> well, Carmen Infantino draws a few. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> and we'll have a lot to say. To, I have a lot to say about that. But yeah. I think we've said all there is to say, if, uh, unless you want to add anything else. Um, uh, you know, um, just that no gifts required, <laughs> no gifts required. Your presence is present. In <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, man, there's some weird issues coming up. All right. <laughs> I, I'm just flipping ahead. Sorry. But um, I forgot how strange some of these get. But no anyway. Doctor Strange. No, he's not not no. Nah, he's coming back too. Oh, they eventually. They all come back. They'll they'll come back. Yes. Well, you know, here, here's the note, so we don't have to bring this up next time. The interesting thing that I was asking about was uh, Nighthawk, and that I was calling it the Martha moment. You know, between Nighthawk and Summer. Oh, yeah. Like, but right. we're defenders. But I realize they kind of don't. Nighthawk comes in in the story when he's part of Squadron. Whichever squadron, squadron sinister, and he's actually a bad guy, and that's when the Mariner leaves, and that's when Nighthawk comes in and takes joins the Defenders to fight uh, Magneto. The next issue, mm, yeah. So they, they they so their paths when they when their paths crossed, they were rivals. So that's why there isn't like a whole oh of course you're Nighthawk of the Defenders because while he might realize def- he's responding to Defenders, he doesn't really know who Nighthawk is on a personal level. Yeah. So, um, Makes sense. That that was a fair scene. Right. 
that Zack Snyder ripped off for Batman Superman. Uh, yes, I'm sure. I've been waiting 40 years to use this scene <laughs> from. Your uh, mother Defenders. was a defender. My mother was a defender. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time, I suggest we all say. Defenders dissemble. Hooray. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a review. Give us all the stars. We will see you again next time. we got an interesting episode coming up next week that's a little off the beaten path, and we are looking forward to it, and we hope you will be too. Superhero. I'm